Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> And once again, welcome to Diffusion, the international science show. I'm Matthew Clark, and this week we'll be the only show in the world brave enough to bring you the Animal Olympics, held recently in China. And we'll be taking a look at what it took to win the Nobel Prize for Physics this year, plus anything else we can fit into a half-hour show. But before we can get to any of that, here's your weekly Diffusion Science News with Mark West. A 14-year-old who suffers from epilepsy is the first teenager to play a two-dimensional video game using only signals from his brain, a unique experiment conducted by a team of neurosurgeons, neurologists and engineers at Washington University in St. Louis has found. And the game was one of my favourites from the 1980s, Space Invaders. This type of work has implications towards someday building biomedical devices that can control artificial limbs, for instance, enabling the disabled to move prosthetic arms or legs by simply thinking about it. The teenager had an electric grid placed upon his brain to record electrocorticographic ECOG activity, data taken invasively right from the brain's surface. Eric Luthart, an assistant professor of neurological surgery at the School of Medicine, and Daniel Moran, assistant professor of biomedical engineering, performed their research on the boy who had had the grids implanted so that neurologists and neurosurgeons could find the area of the brain that causes epileptic seizures. Luthart and Moran connected the patient to a sophisticated computer running a special program known as BCI2000, which connected the Space Invaders game to the ECOG grid. They then asked the boy to do various motor and speech tasks, moving his hands various ways, talking and imagining things. The team could then see from the data which parts of the brain and what brain signals correlate to these movements. They then asked the boy to play Space Invaders by actually moving his tongue and his hand. He was then asked to imagine the same movements, but not to actually perform them with his hands or his tongue. He cleared out the whole of Level 1 basically on brain control, said Luthart. He learned almost instantaneously. He mastered two levels playing only with his imagination. This really was a symphony of expertise ranging from neurosurgery, neurology, neuroscience, engineering and computer science, which was years in the making. The end result is something that we can be really proud of. Some interesting news now for the tough, cocky muscle men among us. Professor Lee Simmons of the University of Western Australia and US researcher Professor Douglas Emlin of the University of Montana have shown that there is an evolutionary trade-off between the ability to fight off sexual competitors, i.e. be really tough, and reproductive potency. They found that beetles with the biggest horns have the smallest testes. There is a trade-off between the ability to find a mate and the ability to fertilise her. The researchers looked at the beetles of the genus Onthophagus, dung beetles known for the size and variety of their horns. What we did was test a fundamental assumption underlying evolution, that males face a trade-off between competing for access to lots of females and investment in gaining fertilisation with those females, Simmons says. They need to have big horns to win fights and get females, and they need to have big testes in order to win in the sperm competition. But they can't do both, 
so species which invest very heavily in their horns tend to invest less in their testes. There are other examples in nature also. Bats trade the size of their testes for brain power. Stork-eyed flies, in which eye span width is a measure of sexual desirability, trade testy size for the width of their eyes. And clearly, this is known in humans. Those with the most expensive cars with the loudest sound systems have the smallest penises. Do you look like your father when you're angry? Probably more than you'd imagined. Facial expressions may be inherited. According to Israeli scientists, every person has a set of facial expressions that is unique to them, a signature of their identity that remains stable over time. Stable patterns of facial expressions arise before a baby is six months old, but until now, scientists were unsure whether these patterns were learned or innate. We were interested to examine whether there is a unique family facial expression signature, said lead author Gili Peleg from the University of Haifa in Israel. We correctly assumed that we would find similarities between the facial expressions of relatives. The study, published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, involved 21 participants who had been blind from birth, each with either one or two relatives who had normal vision. According to the researchers, blind individuals have no way of learning the facial expressions of their relatives by mimicry. The common perception that blind people touch others' faces to sense their expressions was revealed to be, in fact, just very impolite behaviour. The scientists induced six emotional states in each individual, sadness, anger, joy, think, concentrate, disgust and surprise, and then documented all the facial movements the person made while experiencing a particular emotion. 43 different facial movements were recorded, including movements such as biting the lower lip on the left-hand side, moving the lips while pressed together, as though chewing, rolling the upper lip inside the mouth, sticking out the tongue slightly while touching both lips, and pulling down the corners of the mouth whilst pushing the chin forward. A computer program was used to allocate the blind individual to a family according to the types of movements observed and their frequencies. The blind individual was allocated to the correct family 80% of the time when using information from all six emotional states. These findings indicate the existence of a hereditary basis for facial expressions, Peleg explained. When each emotional state was analysed separately, the computer correctly allocated the blind individual to his or her family most often for the negative emotion anger at 75%. It's that time of year again. Time for boffins to dust off the tuxedos or sequin ball gowns, shine a bit more spit on the wingtips or stilettos, and tread the red carpet to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Yes, it's Nobel Prize time. Sciences, equivalent of the Academy Awards. Or if you're an Aussie, the Logies for propeller heads. Over the course of one exciting week in October, those wacky Swedes announced the winners of the Nobel Prizes in Physics, Chemistry, Medicine, Peace, Economics and Literature. Once they're over the shock, the lucky winners don the glad rags and make their way to Stockholm for the gala ceremony in December. Chris Stewart reports on the 2006 Nobel Prizes for Physics given to a couple of Americans who managed the astounding feat of getting the universe to stick a thermometer in its gob while they took its temperature. Two weeks ago, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences announced the winners of this year's crop of Nobel Prizes in chemistry, medicine, literature, peace, economics and physics. 
The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the Nobel Prize in Physics for the year 2006 jointly to John Mather and George Smoot. And they get the prize for their discovery of the black body form and anisotropy of the cosmic microwave background radiation. And both of the laureates are from the US and Dr. Mather works at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and Professor Smoot is active at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and at University of California in Berkeley. That was Professor Gunnar Ockwist, Secretary General of the Academy, making the official announcement. The Physics Prize this year, as you just heard, went to John Mather and George Smoot both from the United States of America, for their high-precision measurements of the cosmic background radiation. That's the leftover glow from the Big Bang itself, cooled to a fraction above absolute zero over these last 13 billion years or so. It isn't the first Nobel Prize for this subject. The discovery of the cosmic background radiation by Penzias and Wilson back in 1964 got the Nobel gong in 1978. It's a great story, this one. Penzias and Wilson literally tripped over the afterglow of the Big Bang while trying to isolate the source of some noise that they were hearing on their radio receivers. And after ruling out electric faults and pigeon poo, they realised that the static they were hearing on their instruments was in fact coming from the universe itself. Everywhere around, space was hissing with microwave frequency radiation. A decade and a half earlier, a bunch of theorists, Alpha, Gamov and Herman, had predicted that, assuming there had been a Big Bang, it should have left behind a wash of electromagnetic radiation. And initially, this would have been really hot. But as the universe expands, the radiation would have cooled. And by now, it should be very cool indeed. The noise that Penzias and Wilson found fit the theorists' predictions perfectly. Now, if you're the sort of person who likes to experiment with stuff at home, then try this. Go and unhook your TV from the DVD player or the VCR or satellite or cable box or whatever you've got and just watch the static on the screen. Now, of course, modern TVs are designed not to show you any static, but what's the fun in that? Write to your company now. Anyway, it's been estimated that one in every ten of those little dots of static on your TV screen is the result of a photon from the cosmic microwave background. So, now you can stay up late, grab a beer, turn on the TV and watch the universe cool. Nice. Anyway, back in the 70s, NASA put out the word for satellite-borne experiments that would measure the background radiation more accurately. The COBE satellite, which stands for Cosmic Background Explorer, was finally launched in the late 80s. Its mission was to measure the energy spectrum of this background radiation across the whole sky very accurately. Mather and Smoot were scientific directors of the COBE mission, and they were the ones who looked at the data when it came pouring in. What they saw in the data was pretty remarkable. The radiation wash across the sky shows that the universe has a most astoundingly uniform temperature, around minus 270 degrees, 
or just a bit under 3 degrees above absolute zero. And if you account for hot things like the sun and the centre of the galaxy and things like that, then the variation in this temperature as you look across the sky is just one-tenth of one percent, or one part in a thousand. The whole cosmos is glowing faintly like an ember in a dying fire. That's what the universe sounds like if you change the cosmic background radiation spectrum into a sound spectrum instead. Thanks to University of Virginia astronomer Mark Whittle for that one. But in the COBE data, Smoot and Mather saw more than mere homogeneity. Sitting underneath this remarkably uniform glow, they found tiny fluctuations. This part of the sky ever so slightly warmer or cooler than that part of the sky. These ripples in the cosmic microwave background are thought to be another signature of the Big Bang. Just a minute fraction after that first incredible instant when the universe was still very, very tiny. It was seething with quantum bubbles and roiling with energy. Many cosmologists think that the ripples seen by Kobe in the cosmic microwave background are the fingerprints of that earliest of epochs, blown up to cosmic scales by a mind-bogglingly rapid expansion of space-time known appropriately as inflation. So here's to Mathers and Smoot, Physics Nobel Laureates for 2006, for two awe-inspiring feats of modern science, taking the temperature of the universe and fingerprinting Chris the Big there, Bang. reporting on the winners of the 2006 Nobel Prize for Physics.
known There's people starting fires now There's people causing smoke Everybody listen Everyone take no hope There's people starting fires now There's people causing smoke Everybody listen Now you only know There's people starting fires People And a bit of jump up by Soldiers of the Sun there. Now, animal lovers beware. The following feature may contain violence to animals. If you've ever signed up for the WWF, you might like to cover your ears. Jackie Hayes looks at the role of our national emblem in the Animal Olympics. Some of you may already be aware of the Animal Olympics that are currently being held in Shanghai. Yes, that's right. The Chinese have brought together animals from all over the world and pitted them against each other. Chimpanzees are playing basketball. Monkeys are racing bicycles. Bears are boxing, horses are fighting, and of course, humans and bears and monkeys are participating in a climbing competition. I'm not quite sure if this is what Darwin had in mind, but it definitely lets us know which animal is superior. The opening of the National Animal Olympics was Thursday the 28th of September. Events from athletics to soccer will be featured. More than 30 species of animals on teams from 26 Chinese provinces and cities will take part. One of the first events was a boxing match, Australian kangaroo versus human clown. For a true blue Australian, and that's me, in case you're all wondering, this was actually quite heart-wrenching. Our national emblem was held down by a harness and made to box with gloves that was surely not designed for its paws. Now, no one specified exactly which kangaroo it was, and there are three species of kangaroo. We have the red kangaroo, the largest marsupial anywhere in the world, and then the smaller eastern grey and western grey kangaroos. There were photos on the web of the kangaroo boxing the clown, and from these photos you can see that the kangaroo was about the same height as the human in the ring, and it was a greyish colour. So the kangaroo was probably an eastern grey or a western grey kangaroo. But now, let's take away the harness that was holding the kangaroo down, and let's take away the boxing gloves for just a second. Who would really win in the battle of human versus kangaroo? On the panel today, we have Matt Clark, Mark West, Jackie Pfeffer, and myself, Jackie Hayes. And first up, guys, just tell me, each and every one of you, which one do you think would win? Straight up, human versus kangaroo. Matt? I would have thought, in the end, human would win, but kangaroo is going to have a much larger reach. Ah. Because they can sit back on their tail and they can just hit you. And yeah. They- and they don't have to hit anywhere in particular. They can just hit you and they're going to hit send you flying. Jackie, what, which one? Human versus kangaroo? I'd imagine that the kangaroo has mm. a lot more force in a single blow. 
So yep. it wouldn't take that many blows to take down a human. So I'm I'm putting my money on the kangaroo. And, and I Mark? hope it's the kangaroo. Mark? Mm, I'm with the kangaroo as well. One lucky punch and that kangaroo's got it made. Okay, all right. I'll go I'll go human just to keep it interesting. Two two against two for us. So let's uh look let's look at the punch first. So a red kangaroo can be two meters tall and weigh ninety kilograms. But it was probably the western grey kangaroo, the littlest of them, that was in this ring with the clown. And it only weighs 54 kilograms. But they can also be two metres tall, head to tail, so still pretty big. But let's just think about this for a second. If you're smacking someone, what really matters is how much of your body weight you can get moving while you smack the person and how fast you can get it going. If you're a 70 kilogram male, then you want all 70 kilograms moving through that punch in order to get it to really hurt right yes are you all with me on this on this idea yes i'm with you on this idea okay so you've got a kangaroo who's 54 kilograms and it can sit back on its tail and smack you and it can get like all of its body weight moving forward whereas a human only has its arm are we that's a good point well kangaroos the the difference being if they're smacking you with their feet their feet are going to be quite a large surface area which is going to reduce the amount of pressure that's being hit on you. If I punch you with my fist, it's, you know, about 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. That's a lot of pressure. That's true. Smaller area, more... That's right. More hurt. You can break some bones with that. But a kangaroo can go from standing position and then leap 30 eight, feet or something seven meters, in one eight go, meters, in one leap. Yeah. So that's a lot of force that a kangaroo's got to have behind it for just one leap. So if it's back on its tail, kicking somebody, it's going to be putting the same amount of force in. So you reckon it could kick a human eight metres? Oh, I don't know. Well, you've seen I think what, it could try. Yep. I mean, if it could lift its own body weight that far in, in one single spring. Then... Have you seen what kangaroos can do to cars? I've seen what they kangaroos can do to cars. Out. I wouldn't want to be on the end of that. The other thing is boxing practice. Like, males actually box each other in, like, in the wild all the time. Well, am I talking <laughs> yeah. about? Am I talking about humans yeah. or am yes. I talking about kangaroos? Some of them get paid millions <laughs> of dollars to I'd do say it. a bit of both. <laughs> let's let's move on. We both have enough practice in that area. But say say we came against a kangaroo in the wild, started boxing them, and things went and things went AWOL for, for either either one, the human or the kangaroo. Let's say escape methods. We have to get out of there. A kangaroo can hop away at seventy kilometers per hour. 70 kilometres per hour, that's pretty damn fast. It's faster than I go on the Pacific Highway when I'm driving to work. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> the speed limit's 60 kilometres, Mark. Okay, and then now we have the fastest man in the world over 100 metres. Is that drug-assisted or unassisted? <laughs> well, well <laughs> let's go drug-assisted for now. Okay. You can, the fastest man in the world can do 100 metres in approximately 10 seconds. So if he could actually run this pace for an hour, he that fastest pace in the world, then he would cover 36 kilometres. And that's a super fit, drug-taking athlete, not your average overweight human maccas in hand. <laughs> so I think 36 kilometres versus 70 kilometres per hour, the kangaroo is yep. well out of there if things go wrong. And then let's just take adaptation to drought. I think this is valid, given Australian conditions. Oh, so this is the survivor test, is so it? So the survivor mm. test, yes. Female kangaroos actually have the astonishing ability to pause fetal growth. So when a drought hits, kangaroos start having fewer babies. 
Let's compare this to humans, shall we? Using Australian politics as our example. When the drought hit, John Howard and Peter Costello urged us all to have one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country. And when that didn't make birthright skyrocket, they added the baby bonus just for fun. So, despite the cruelty that's innate in this particular competition, hasn't every male kind of had this thought? You know, what would win, a shark or a crocodile? Yeah. Or an emu versus a moose. An emu versus a moose. I've had that. And then you get to eat the loser. (laughs) And that was Jackie Hayes with the cruelty of the Animal Olympics. Sadly, it's time to say goodbye from all of us here at Team Diffusion. If you'd like some more information on any of the stories we featured today, if you're trying to decide whether to buy T3 shares or half of Channel 9, or if you feel listening to our show has cost you 30 minutes of the John Law Show that you'll never get back, you can email us on diffusion at 2SCR.com. Warming the seats on this week's show were Mark West, Jackie Hayes and Chris Stewart. This week, Diffusion was produced in the lofty studios of 2SCR Sydney with a lot of help from the deft fingers of Jackie Peffer, providing technical assistance and just generally pushing the right buttons. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and all over the world through our podcast at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Matthew Clark, and make sure to join us here next week for more science news and views on Diffusion. Sometimes she feels she's a little bit crazy